So I began tonight by talking about this amazing power that we have within to, to pay attention, to notice. And I don't think there's ever been a time in my lifetime that, that uh, we need that power, we need that strength, we need that confidence that comes from a certain kind of uh, stability of awareness, uh, from a well-trained mind. And we, there's just not, it, it's just, we, we just have to learn to appreciate this, uh, this Buddha within, this uh, protector that lives in our heart as, as, as the one who knows in you, the, the divine in you that is you, that is uh, nearer than your breath, this ever-present wakefulness and clarity. We really need it. We, cannot, we can't keep devoting ourselves to our insufficiencies and are obsessed about our, what's, what's not right about us. We have to give some attention to the, to the views that we have about ourselves and the things that keep coming back again and again, but we have to really embrace how, how amazing you are. You know, that Tibetan word, Emaho, you're amazing. You have, you have this indestructible awareness that lives in you, and when you nurture it, it really does make things workable. And it is literally a split second and a half breath away when you, that where you can, and I'm, I hate to borrow this, but I've, I've been watching a little bit of the program, where you can declutter your mind. I've been watching Marie Kondo. <laughs> Marie Kondo, the woman who is basically sweeping the world with, this, uh, with her book of tidying, of, of how to get rid of how to declutter your home and, and basically only keep those things that spark joy. And, you know, it seemed to me as I was the last episode that I happened to peek a little bit at, it wasn't very long, but, but it seemed to me that it's, it's very similar to, the, um, to decluttering the contents of our mind. Because it just, if you look, you know, where the, the Buddha said, whatever you frequently dwell upon becomes the inclination of your mind. And so if you use this protector within and you study, study your mind, study where, what you keep dwelling in, what, what is your frequent visitor, what is your, what, where do you frequent, what is becoming um, your mind, because whatever seeds you plant, whatever you give attention, becomes the inclination of your mind. What are you dwelling on? If you dwell on, if you notice that you dwell on your insufficiencies, dwell on negativity, dwell on, on what you don't have that you want or what you want that you don't have, does that spark joy? So the fact that our minds are cluttered, there's a whole range of things. The teachings really address why our minds are cluttered. And they, the, the beauty of the teachings, at least in my opinion, is that you're not left with, oh, this is why it happens. That's, that never liberated anybody. It maybe puts things in perspective, but it, it compels you then to, to see that you have within you this capacity to declutter.
to calm, to ease, to clarify your experience. And so when I look at, if I look at the teachings of what, why it is that we do clutter our mind, it is partly, I would say, partly uh, because we, this is a main reason, we do not understand the power of learning how to navigate the feeling tone that accompanies our experience. I started to listen to the State of the Union address on my little smartphone tonight. And I noticed immediately, partly because I was sitting in this room, I noticed immediately that my mind started to go right into hearing the, it started going into the dialogue, there's nothing this person is saying that is true. This is 100% dishonest. And it produced a really unpleasant feeling. And if I'm aware of that unpleasant feeling and I just hover there and just let myself register that, that feeling of that increased sense of nausea, if I feel that that nausea comes and goes and it doesn't proliferate into that grumbling feeling and then I could, it can actually spread out into what we call papancha, a kind of proliferation, a kind of going of the mind way beyond just what I was experiencing to, to the, our future and our past and it becomes this huge drama. But instead tonight, I just felt this, I'm feeling nauseous. I'm feeling nauseated again. And you know, I'd glanced at it before, but I felt it tonight. I let my mind sink into my body and felt the impact of that particular sound or that thought. And in that moment, I was able to accommodate the unpleasantness of that. And just like you see with your pain, with your physical pain, there it had discontinuity, it came and went. At least for that moment, because I didn't keep feeding the, the, um, the story of it, 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 didn't, it, it wasn't sticky. So learning how to accommodate that feeling of nausea or unpleasantness or whatever it is that comes when something has a, has a uh, really unpleasant association. Because very quickly, unpleasant associations lead to reactivity. And it's that reactivity can really snowball into a, 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 um, a sense that I, you know, I can't, I have to do something, I have to go somewhere, I have to, to distract myself or something otherwise. And that has led us to lifetime after lifetime, either metaphorically or realistically, lifetime of searching searching and becoming, trying to get away from the unpleasant. So if one central thing that just clutters our mind is the inability to be with unpleasant. So the more you can just hover a little bit, hang out with unpleasant. Same with being with the pleasant. Without it triggering this huge grasping and then this fantasy life and more and the, you know, the endless search to replicate whatever we're experiencing right now. And, and then, and w- with the capacity to actually feel pleasure, you feel the pleasure come and go and it's not as sticky. And the capacity to feel the, what's called the, the neutral or neither pleasant or unpleasant, you feel that. And even in the middle of it, 
before your mind then goes, oh, this is dull or this is boring, it actually, your mind opens up into, into what we call equipoise or equanimity. Balance of mind, a balanced energy. Just because I accommodated the neutral. So that's a huge thing. If, I'm rea- if I don't accommodate the unpleasant, I'm often running in my complaints. If I don't accommodate the pleasure, I'm often running in the continual search for more. In, in any case, if I'm, off, if I'm not accommodating the neutral, I'm off in a state of fantasy or spacing out or, or you know, thinking about the imagined me and, and missing reality. But if I accommodate these, all of it ends. The end of the path ends right where I'm sitting. I sit, I ease myself back into the boundless Buddha nature right where it touches me. And, and that all of a sudden I feel strong again. I was so happy to catch how nauseated I felt. I really felt nauseous. And uh, I actually learned a little something about, uh, I want to watch that a little closer. And there was actually a little joy. It sparked joy to see that. It sparks joy to feel the pleasure. It sparks joy to feel the neutral the evenness of mind. So that's the, the experiential side of it where you can actually declutter through learning how to stay embodied instead of disembodied in, your, in the endless searching that your mind does. You know that the... Go ahead. Yes, real-time interactions with people. That's what often triggers me, you know? And yes. How do you suggest doing this when you need to possibly be keeping a dialogue? Well, keeping a dialogue is, much, is 200% easier if you have internal mindfulness and external mindfulness. Often we become disembodied in so much external mindfulness that we're actually shocked by our reactions and we're not used to having that be part of the field of our meditation. I think it's, or field of our conversation. I think it's really, it's not easy, but it's, but it's just a matter of bringing awareness to both internal and external and, and learning how to trust that. And the reason I said 200% better, when I'm tracking both, I don't have to be self-conscious about what I say. There's something that's really quite naturally organizing about that. And I think our doubt is that we just haven't experimented so much with, with trying to stay embodied. So I'd say, you know, the general 65-35 rule of 65% of your attention in your body and, and internal mindfulness, 35 external. And I have a feeling you'll listen better, you'll respond more skillfully. Go ahead. Well, it's different moments. You, you definitely can do it. Don't believe me, though. You can do it. And when you, if what's happening internally is that you're getting so flooded and reactive, then you have to find a way to, to, uh, to take care of yourself. 
and sometimes to withdraw from the conversation. And maybe even describe that you're not able to have that conversation right now, that you don't feel safe or you don't feel like you can, you can really say what you want to say and, and not be on somebody else's schedule. So stand alone in your truth. Yeah. That's, I think you have the skillfulness to do that. Please. Once you've, once you felt, once you realize that you feel like that, wait till the microphone comes. Hello. Once you you realized that you felt that when you were listening to the State of the Union, were you able to keep on listening? Uh, I chose at that time to turn it off. I thought I, I, at that moment, given the evening, etc., I, I thought it was, um, it was not the best place for me to put my attention right now. Mm-hmm. I could actually accommodate a longer period of that if I could give it full attention, but I had to think about the evening. And yeah, okay. sometimes I'll turn it off, sometimes I won't. <laughs> I felt very... It's nice to have have it recorded, it, unless you don't want to be recorded, because it's not turned on. Um, you talked a little bit about the your your truth and sticking to your truth in a situation where your reactive mind kind of takes over, and in a conversation um, with someone and trying to kind of stop and take a step back and not really react or even say that, oh yeah, you know, this is not the right moment or maybe I'm not being true to myself. Those situations come by, but I feel like sometimes you don't want to, you just kind of keep going. And that's where sometimes the awareness disappears for me. So I'm trying to kind of get better at that, but maybe um, there are certain things that you can, I don't know, maybe some tips or some way for you to kind of take a step back and really, really be true to your, to your truth. That would be helpful. Well, I, I'm not sure I can, I, I, like you said, sometimes whatever the power of that interaction becomes stronger than the power of your attention and you just get carried away by it. At the, that just means that the power of the conditioning to keep going was stronger than the power of mindfulness. So that's why we, we really train all the time. From the time you get up in the morning until the time you go to bed, you train the habit of, of um, embracing the, that in you which is aware and awake. And you cultivate mindfulness all through the day whenever you can so that it starts popping up in those moments and does function as a real protector. That's why we train our mind. I was speaking to somebody recently who who went through a a really incredibly painful divorce. I know that it's not uncommon since 60% of marriages end in divorce these days in this country. This person was constantly being um, invited by the, by the person's family members to stay in contact. And it was incredibly painful to keep 
keep being reminded of the, of the heartache. And, and this is somebody who has been really, who is probably the most disciplined yogi that I know, who practices every day with a lot of gusto. But she also recognizes that some, her, sometimes the flooding is so intense that she does not, does not have the capacity. And so she very consciously limits the amount of, um, amount of contact that she has with, with these people. But the interesting thing is that even if she's gone through a wave and she's gotten flooded, she defaults very quickly to understanding the whole situation. She, she bounces back into, into that place in her that's not touched by what visits. And imagine if she didn't have that, the bandwidth that comes from, from practice, you just get blown by the circumstances so much. So it's, this is not something we can just do on, on Tuesdays. It really has to be, it has to be something that uh, is literally, you're rem- being reminded of it fairly constantly. And until your default state of mind, really, your default way of being is empty, open, clear, bright, steady. That is your natural state. And if you're not living as that, in that, it means you're, 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 you've got to just get used to that a little bit more, stabilize it a little more. Never judge the fact that your mind dwells and gets caught up in many things. That's just conditioning. It's nobody's fault. But it just says more conditioning is needed of wakefulness. You have the tools. And if there's ever a time that we need them is right now. To really gain, do what you need to do to gain confidence in the fact that you can be present. Gain confidence in an interaction. Don't immediately fall into the... To, uh, a fact that you may have failed the last time you spoke to somebody and you lost it. You just keep, keep showing up, what is keep trying. So the other, go ahead, Kevin. Why don't you wait for the microphone? Thank you, Noemi, you're such a dear. This is that dialogue night. Yeah, like you, I was listening to the State of the Union on the way over, just in terms of what you focus on, to hear the, the talk being said, God, I would think, man, given the impression that we live in this apocalyptic hellscape, you know, that tens of thousands of murders and rapes and assaults and on and on and on, and I'm like, man, this is all bullshit. You know, there's... Um, among other things, I mean, I do a lot of property management stuff and deal with a lot, a lot of, as a lot of probably people here do, undocumented people that are the friggin' best people I've ever met. Honest, dependable, you know, I'm the son of an immigrant, came over. Not, not much difference except that there was kind of a path then. But um, listening to this stuff, I'm like, people that are listening to this that are not this is the perception you're going to get, and you're going to have that mentality, this is the kind of world you live in. I just read a book called Enlightenment Now, 
that actually the, the facts are indisputable. We live in the safest time in the, hist in the history of the world. There's, we're safer than ever. All the, there's all kinds of progress that's happening, you know, in terms of diseases being cured, less people, child, you know, all these things happening that are good. It's not to say that there's not a ways to go, but if you look at his problems to be solved, instead of focusing on this, you know, that we're sinking into the bottom of this stuff. But listening to that, I'm thinking, these people are listening to this thing and getting this impression that we're, like I said, that we're living in this friggin' apocalyptic movie of, of, you know, everybody slaughtering each other. And that's not the case. I mean, there are bad things that are happening that need to be addressed, and we can focus on them and solve them. You know, I mean, all these d diseases, malaria killed half the people that ever lived, and half the humans that ever lived has been wiped out pretty much in most places. All these, you know, Paul, all these other things. There's, there's a yes, lot of good things that are happening. I, Find those, you know. That's yes, I just there's been, good news. There's good news. And, and there's still just so much work to be done to address the, the pain. That's not to, not to just rail against the pain, to, to heal the pain. I'm just so inspired by the, the writer who is uh, exposing the, the people in, that ICE is holding in the, in the detention centers from India who are in a, on a hunger strike right now because they're not being treated well. And you don't hear about this unless somebody tells their story. And, and there's good and there's lots of difficulty. And we, we just keep our heart open and keep awake, but in the, we have to maintain mental strength. And we can't be dwelling in our, like I said when we started, we can't be dwelling in our insufficiencies all day long. That's just, or our doubts. So everybody, I think, should have a list on their refrigerator. I do this every few years. Five hindrances. The five hindrances, if you don't know they're happening, they make your life seem as though there's no way you can find strength and balance and ease right where you're sitting. The wanting mind, wanting what you don't have. The wanting mind will continually hypnotize you into thinking that relief is not to be found here and that, that you are that you are, um, um, that, that you are without some kind of acquisition, some kind of person, some kind of place, some kind of thing, you, you can't be relieved. Notice that, that mind. That keeps us on the wheel of endlessly searching for a future that never arrives. Notice the second hindrance, aversion irritation, <laughs> nausea. <laughs> if unnoticed, it will proliferate into seeing everyone as wrong. You wrong, everyone wrong. I can't be happy until the world is right. And the world needs you to be happy now. Your greatest transmission is the quality of your being with each person that you come into contact with. If your mind is shrouded in ill will and irritation, this is the, this is the gift that you're giving to the world. 
Yet, if you notice aversion, you see it's a changing condition. You can work with it. You notice that you're irritated or you're nauseous from, from anger, you're frustrated, you're fearful. Unnoticed, it just proliferates. Endless wandering in a state of aversion. Same with worry and restlessness worry. It's a huge uh, waste of energy. I think I may even talked about worry last week. Maybe I didn't. Hafez, now that you've seen that, that all your worry is such an unlucrative occupation, time to get a better job. It just goes nowhere. It just leads to restlessness and agitation and, uh, and a, an illusion that, that uh, somehow we are going to do something well about, uh, about the future that is just really an idea. There is no future. Time is always now. We just so easily miss that. And so... How do we deal with that? We turn toward worry. We go, oh, this is worry. And we, we soothe ourselves. We soothe ourselves. Otherwise, endless wandering. And then with our, uh, we definitely, the first three tend to exhaust us. So we end up with a lot of dullness of mind and then get seduced by the, the, the fog that comes over us, the, the, uh, the diminishment of our, our bright energy. And, and it has nothing to do with being tired. It has to do with, with having our mind fogged by, by confusion. So we, instead of believing the dullness of our mind as something we need to, that needs to lead us to sleepiness, we should turn right toward it. Oh, this is dullness. This is... Put the light of attention, light yourself up by noticing your mental state of, of dullness, of fogginess. And I, I don't even want to get into the rest, but put a, a list of the hindrances. Desire, aversion, restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor, and doubt. Uh, most of our story of doubt describes somebody that doesn't exist. I can't do this. It's not working for me. It never will. Um, Everybody else is getting enlightened except me. This is just a story. It's about nobody. You are the Buddha. Why don't you see it? There's a view that you have about yourself that you keep chronically falling into, which is I'm not the Buddha. I'm just an idiot, insufficient person. You'll never find that idiot, insufficient person on present evidence. It requires you consulting your memory. And your memory is just another distorted second-hand version. How do we remember that? How do we remember that? Practice, 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 practice. One more thing before we go. So decluttering. Back to decluttering. Is there any clutter in a moment of mindfulness? Is your mind cluttered right now? 
Is your mind cluttered when you know you're eating, when you know you're, you're washing, when you know you're walking, when you know you're breathing, when you know you're hearing, when you know you're thinking? There is no clutter in a moment of mindfulness. How long does it take to have a moment of mindfulness? It's, it is the expression of awareness. It is the aspect of awareness of bare attention with clear comprehension that is, uh, that is as close and available to us as, as our breath. So there's no excuse to have a cluttered mind. There's no excuse other than we're conditioned to be unmindful. But that deconditioning is so accessible to us. And it get, and literally every moment deconditions that habit of cluttering our mind. So it's both this moment-to-moment -moment thing, it's also understanding, understanding that no matter how long you search for salvation, just as the Buddha said in his famous utterance when he woke up, he said, oh, house builder, you know, the house that we build in our mind of where we're going and where we've been and how someday we'll be okay. He said, oh, house builder. Well, at first he said, through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. In other words, I see what my mind is doing. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again and unconsciously. Your rafters are broken, which means the defilements, these hindrances. You see them for what they are. They're trances of the mind. Your rafters are broken. Your ridgepole destroyed. Ignorance. You're no longer falling into a case of mistake, of misplaced faith in what's next or in the ideas of yourself. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your, your rafters are broken. Your ridgepole destroyed. Your mind, my mind gone to the unconditioned. What can't be taken away from me? The unborn, the Buddha in you. That which is timelessly aware. I'll leave you with the words of, of one of our Sangha members who's not here very often, but he did a study and wrote this beautiful passage. There are a few things that may be debatable, but I want to end with this. He, this the title of this passage is The Immortality of Awareness. The Immortality of Awareness. Awareness is unlike anything else. It knows itself in a direct and immediate, un unmediated way. In the experience of self-awareness, the knowing subject, the means of knowing, and the known are all the same thing. The knowing subject, awareness, through the medium of awareness, knows awareness. In other words, you know when you're aware. Awareness is non-material. 
It illuminates the contents of the five senses, six senses, but cannot be detected by any of them. Nor can it be weighed, measured, or detected in any way by any specific scientific instrument. It both follows from the above and is consistent and with experience that awareness is non-local. Most people probably assume that awareness is located in the brain, but a little reflection shows that it's the other way around. The brain and all other objects of knowledge are in awareness. Since every location can know, we can know is known in awareness, it is clear that awareness itself has no location. Awareness is timeless. It observes the arising and passing of every experience, which means that time passes through it, but awareness itself is always simple presence. It knows the passage of time, but is not itself in time. It subsists in an eternal now. Awareness is not affected by its contents. The awareness of fire is not hot. The awareness of light is no brighter than the awareness of darkness. The awareness of a star is not larger than the awareness of a molecule. The awareness of fear isn't itself afraid. The awareness of anger isn't angry. The awareness of suffering does not itself suffer. This is a truth that is of tremendous psychological importance. What it means is that for all of us, no matter how much pain or trauma we've experienced, there is some part of us that has never been touched by any of it. That's why experienced meditators often refer to awareness as a secure refuge. Taken together, all of the characteristics of awareness show that it must be deathless. Since it is non-material, has no location, is outside of time, and not affected by its content, there is no conceivable way anything could create, change, or destroy it. The conclusion is that awareness simply is always and forever. I don't agree. (laughs) His name is Tom Moon. And it's a, he did beautiful work here, and it's, for an, it's to unpack that for another night, but uh, I think he, the one thing that's missing is the, uh, that without this very finite mind and body, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. So that's always, there's always this interplay between the timeless and, and what, that which is bound in time. It's a paradox. But I hope you get some sense that you do have within you this very incredible, unshakable uh, capacity to, to be confident and strong and aware in these times. So enjoy your wakefulness every moment. And uh, thanks for listening and thanks for your generosity and hope to see you next week. Keep up the good work. Anyway, thanks again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.